0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. (laughs) It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests this week are Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchek. They're the writers behind the book The MVP Machine how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players. There's this quote in it from the great Billy Martin. Billy was a longtime player and manager uh, who ran the Yankees and the A's on multiple occasions each. He was well known for getting fired. The quote goes, You got your mules and you got your racehorses, and you can kick a mule in the ass all you want, and he's still not going to be a racehorse. The MVP Machine basically asks, Well, did the mule try changing his swing? People in baseball always assumed that players were going to be about as good as they were going to be, that by the time they made it to the major leagues, they weren't likely to be transformed. The book gets into how a lot of conventional coaching in the big leagues turns out to be totally wrong. Always lead with your fastball, wrong. Have a nice, even line drive swing, wrong strike out all the time? Who cares? And even if you're not into baseball, I promise there are takeaway lessons in this remarkable book. Ben and Travis, welcome to Bullseye. Great to have you two on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be here. So I think that a lot of our listeners will have some vague familiarity with the idea of Moneyball, which is to say the analytically inclined revolution in the way baseball teams are run that that happened 15 years or so ago and has been happening over the last 15 years or so that was you know made famous in in the michael lewis book and and in the movie what is the difference between what you two guys who are deeply steeped in that stuff are talking about in this book and uh what changed 15 years ago.
0: So this has been I'll start us off. I think what's really changed is that if you go back 15 years or so ago, there was just free talent sitting out there. There were players who were already very productive, very valuable, but teams for the most part didn't realize that what they were doing was as valuable as it was. So in moneyball there's the idea of taking a lot of walks, having a high on-base percentage. That was undervalued because all teams were really looking at was getting hits and batting average. So Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland A's at that time, and also at this time, could go out and sign guys, trade for guys who were already good, and other teams just didn't realize it. Those players were undervalued by the market. Now, in the wake of Moneyball, all the other teams caught on because they read Moneyball or they saw the movie, and they figured, we have to start doing these things too. We have to hire the quants, the statistical analysts who can value this past performance and tell us what players are worth and which players we should go get. So at this point, there aren't any teams that aren't doing that. Everyone is doing that. Everyone has a quantitative analysis department. There isn't a lot of talent that's just sitting there waiting to be plucked. And so the big competitive advantage now, the way to win, is not to be better at finding talent because there's parity now when it comes to that But to be better at creating talent, building talent, enhancing talent, making players better, that was something that Moneyball really didn't talk about except to say that it's not possible, that you can't really take players and make them better. You just have to go get players who are already good. This new movement and what we're talking about now This is about player development. This is about the idea that players can be better. They can transcend what their limitations were believed to be because of new technology, new techniques, new training, new coaches with non-traditional backgrounds. And we've seen a lot of players alter the trajectory of their careers by employing these new methods that weren't available until just the past few years.
1: So every baseball team has coaches. My Little League team had Big Reggie and Little Reggie. You probably have heard of them. (laughs) Um, So what is the difference between what is happening now and what was happening 10 or 20 years ago? If a baseball team already had a pitching coach, what is the pitching
2: coach doing now that's different? It's changed dramatically. And there's always been coaches, as you note, but it's the information coaches uh, are using and it's the type of coaches that are entering professional baseball that is changing It used to be coaching was kind of traditional knowledge passed down uh, from coach to coach, and coaches were generally always ex-players at the professional level, and there wasn't much data analysis going on, there weren't many new ideas filtering in, we're now we're seeing all this new information from, from StackCast, from new technologies entering the game that are, uh, you know, money balls of kind of a small amount of data, really, when we look back on it. Now there's this avalanche of information from biomechanical data to pitch usage and movement and all sorts of things going on. So there's this crush of data. And coaches are, more and more coaches are coming from outside the game. Some of the first innovative coaches were either the college ranks or outside instructors, uh, like Kyle Bodie, who we feature in the book, Doug Lotta, guys like that who have no professional playing experience, were just testing ideas. Bodie was trying to measure everything at his nascent driveline in baseball, which is essentially a garage startup. Uh, And we're seeing this kind of bottom-up revolution where some of the best ideas are coming from outside professional baseball, at these individual outside independent instructors trickling up. And as Ben and I reported this book, you know, Bodie's company had grown and they're like eight or eight driveline employees who were hired by pro teams as we were reporting this book and having to update it all the time throughout the editing process. So we're seeing the makeup of coaches change. You don't have to be an ex-player to coach in pro baseball today. It's more about what you know than where you've been. Uh, so that. Just as Moneyball disrupted who worked in front offices, this movement is very much disrupting who is coaching players, who is working in player development from the pro game to the college game and even in outside facilities. So
1: there have been some attempts to develop baseball players in different and better ways over the decades. They've been kind of fits and starts. What were some of your favorite past baseball development
0: strategies,
1: maybe maybe starting with the very legendary baseball general manager, Branch Rickey.
0: Yeah, I guess I'll take this one since I focused on the history for the book. We really wanted to tie what's happening today, today to what happened in the past because a lot of these methods are, are somewhat new, but the ideas are not necessarily new. It's just that the game wasn't ready for them to be embraced on this scale or the technology wasn't there. So Branch Rickey, the former legendary general manager of the Cardinals and the Dodgers and the Pirates, of course most people know him for calling up Jackie Robinson and and integrating the game, breaking the color barrier. He is rightly celebrated for that. But he made many other contributions to the game. He was the one who invented the farm system, essentially the system in which each major league club has a a number of minor league affiliates that it employs players for. and, And those players, they get good and they climb the ladder and eventually they get to that big league team. Branch Rickey really pioneered that model, and his idea was essentially quality out of quantity. You know, we'll just stockpile all these prospects, we'll get all these minor league teams, and enough of these players will get good that I can promote the best of them and I can win without spending very much, which is something he was also somewhat known for. And he also implemented systems throughout that chain so that if a, a player was hearing something from a coach at one level, then when he got promoted to the next level, he wouldn't hear something completely different. There was kind of a consistency to the instruction. And, and he also developed you know, the, the batting cage and, and different methods to pi- practice pitcher's command and various other instructional techniques that were ahead of their time. So he was very much philosophically, I think, in line with what's happening in the game today but of course he didn't have the technology and As the game went on, there were attempts to do something along the lines of what's happening today. The Royals, Kansas City Royals in the 70s, developed something called the Royals Academy, which was an idea where they would sign these raw high school players who really didn't have much of a baseball background, and they would just have them full-time concentrate on being better at baseball. And they brought in whatever technology existed at that time, you know, primitive video cameras and, and the like. And they kind of tried to turn this into a baseball laboratory where players would be developed and it worked fairly well, but it was shut down after just several years just because it didn't really demonstrate its use to the extent that the old school baseball people in the organization were okay with it. It was seen as sort of a challenge to the traditional player development system. So. That was kind of the thread running through all of this. You can find pockets of innovation and and open-mindedness and free thinking where people thought, why do we do things this way? And, And do we have to keep doing them this way? But there was always pushback. There was always resistance. And the technology wasn't there to make the massive strides that we're seeing today.
1: So in general, baseball teams have considered the development of their players to be substantially out of their control. That is to say, you know, uh, maybe once in a while somebody hurts their arm and becomes a knuckleballer or something. But for the most part, the feedback that coaches were giving, especially at the lower levels, was pretty modest. It was like basic fundamental stuff. Um, And things today are really, really different. What kind of data? do teams have about players and, and what kind of data do players have about themselves?
0: Well, until very recently we had outcome-based data. So we know what happened, but we didn't know how exactly it happened or why it was happening. So and, we could And Ben, in in yeah. baseball
1: particularly, that was that was why it was the playground for nerds uh, who right. like to look at numbers, is because the interactions were really discrete in contrast to like football where what all 11 players are doing on the field is all really important. In baseball, there's basically one pitcher-batter interaction and then some other things on the edges. So, like, we thought we understood it on the basis of did somebody get a hit or not.
0: Right, exactly. And in baseball, of course, you also have about 150 years of professional data. Baseball has been about as well chronicled as any human endeavor during that time. So we had this wealth of information, and you can draw a lot of conclusions from that based on, you know, what is a player worth? What are the best strategies in game? You know, do you want to lay down a sacrifice bunt here? Is that actually beneficial to your team? Well, let's look at all the times that every team has been in this situation and see what happened. And after they bunted and whether they were actually better off. So you can do that kind of analysis, and a lot of great work was done, but it didn't really enter the realm of player performance in the sense of how exactly are the players doing these things? We know who's good and who's not good, but we don't necessarily know why. And just in the past 10 years or so, we've gotten tracking data. So now every pitch that's thrown in the major leagues and in the minor leagues is tracked by radar and camera-based systems that tell you exactly the trajectory that it's following, how much it's moving, what kind of pitch it is, how fast it's flying, where it was located. That's been for about 10 years now. More recently, we've gotten data on batted balls, too. So we know that when a hitter hits the ball, it went at this angle and this hard. And you can tell a lot from that. So that was a big step. Another big step, even more recently, has been tracking the actual movements that the players are making. So not just what the ball is doing, but what the players' bodies are doing. You can put a sensor on the end of the bat and say, what is the plane at which this bat is being swung? What's the angle? How hard is it being swung? Now you can put a sensor on the player's body as he's swinging or as he's pitching, and I did that and tested that out for the book, and you can just have your body festooned with sensors and everything is motion tracked so you can see exactly how every part of the body is moving and firing, and if there's something that's not moving in the right sequence or maybe is not moving fast enough or it's not strong enough, then you can identify that flaw in a way that until very recently, you couldn't. You could kind of eyeball it. And if you were an experienced coach, maybe you could perceive some of these things. But a lot of it was based on naked eye observation, and there was only so much you could see. Whereas nowadays, we have these sensors that are incredibly precise. We have high-speed, high-definition cameras that have entered the game in the past few years and that can show you with unprecedented clarity exactly how the ball is coming off of the pitcher's fingers, for instance. We've talked to many pitchers who've said, I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't know how I was releasing the ball. It was kind of going by feel. Now I'm seeing this footage, and I see, oh, okay, this was touching my index finger as it's coming out of the hand, and that's why it's moving in this way. And so now you can assess, okay, how is the ball coming out of my hand? How is the ball moving once it leaves my hand? How is it spinning? If I want it to move a little more like this, then maybe I can subtly adjust the way I'm holding it, and that will affect the spin axis and therefore the movement. It's a science now. And there was always some amount of player development done, but talent really reigned supreme. It was how good were you? What were your raw skills? Maybe we can refine those, but we're not going to go from terrible to good or good to great. And a lot of it was based on trial and error, seeing what worked and what didn't, or just happenstance. You know, Maybe you worked with a pitching coach who could show you a grip that was beneficial. Maybe you had a teammate who could give you a tip that worked for him and it would work for you. But that was kind of coincidence. And if you weren't at the right place at the right time, then you might never break through whereas now there is a, a much more rigorous, objective, scientific basis to all of this instruction.
1: When we return, Ben and Travis talk about how some of baseball's best are reinventing themselves in a storage unit in Tarzana. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language... Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10-15 to minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, to try Babbel for free.
2: Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Special counsel Robert Mueller isn't getting his wish. He's set to testify about his investigation into Russian interference and possible obstruction of justice by President Trump. Afterwards, the NPR Politics Podcast is going to be there to break down everything you need to know about what he says.
0: Hey, I'm Janet Varney, and like many of you, some more recent than others, I used to be a teenager.
2: In fact, just about all of my friends were too, including wonderful women like Allison Brie. I'm dead center on the balance beam and this is like a big gym
1: all the kids parents are there watching I have to stop like you know when you have to pee so bad and you can't even move and then I just go I just
0: right in the middle of the high balance beam (laughs) so join me every week on the JV Club podcast where I speak with complicated funny messy humans as we reminisce about our adolescences and how they led us to becoming who we are find it every Thursday on Maximum Fun
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joining me are baseball writers Travis Sarchik and Ben Lindberg. Their new book is called The MVP Machine. It's really interesting to me that historically, a lot of these player development strategies for teams are like management strategies, whether it's Branch Rickey's philosophy of just basically signing as many guys as you possibly could and allowing them to filter the, to the top or you know, the the creation of Dodger Town, the Dodgers spring training complex in the, what is it, the 50s or 60s, to the creation of the, the Oriole Way in the 60s and 70s. Um, all of these are like strategies that are basically about how do we keep everybody on the same page and how do we make sure that instruction is consistent. But it seems like these... New strategies and these new techniques are more often coming from, and certainly at the beginning were, more often coming from the outside than the inside. Let's talk about a couple of players who were kind of the vanguard of this movement. One of my favorites, certainly one of my favorites on the Los Angeles Dodgers, my least favorite team, uh, Rich Hill. He was like an old guy who was basically completely washed up, who then suddenly got really good and has been really good into his very now very late 30s. Was he one of the first players you noticed making these kinds of strategic changes to their game to huge effect?
0: Yeah, Rich Hill was actually the inspiration for me to want to write about this topic because he really opened my mind. His transformation at age 35, he was someone who had been in baseball for quite a while, and he'd been bouncing around the minor leagues and occasionally the majors and even independent ball. Unaffiliated with a major league organization. And then suddenly he came back and made some starts at the end of 2015 and was as dominant as any pitcher in the game. And it really kind of came out of nowhere. And as we learned later, this was because he had received a tip from Brian Bannister, who now is the Red Sox assistant pitching coach and also vice president of pitching development. He's a former major league pitcher himself, but he was very progressive. He was always trying to apply whatever data he could to his his own performance, and he's been kind of at the forefront of trying to apply information to players these days. So he noticed, based on information that had just become available that was tracking the spin rate of Hill's pitches, that Hill had an incredible curveball that spun an amazing amount and moved a lot and was very difficult to hit. But Hill had never thrown it all that much because the traditional dogma in baseball is establish your fastball. Everything works off the fastball. The fastball is what you have to throw more than anything else. And that's true for a lot of pitchers, but if you don't have a great fastball and Hill doesn't and you have a devastating breaking ball, then of course you should throw that more. You should throw whatever gets you out. But there was a resistance to that idea for all of baseball history. So Bannister said, hey, why don't you try this? Whatever you're doing right now is not working so well. And Hill was willing to reinvent himself. He started riding this curveball all the way to success, back to the big leagues, back to making more money than he had ever made to his career at that point. And he was already 35. And this was mind-blowing for me because I think we all thought we knew what Rich Hill and other players like him were. And I had always assumed that to get to the big leagues and to stay there, you must have already maximized your abilities. You must have already extracted every iota of performance you could out of what ta- whatever talent you were gifted with. Because that's a really competitive job. It's hard to have a roster spot in the majors. And it really didn't dawn on me that guys could make it to that level and yet have a higher gear, have another level. And Hill really demonstrated that you could. And he's been something of a poster boy for this movement in that a lot of players have subsequently made similar transformations where they realized, hey, I've got a good slider. I've got a good changeup. I've got a good curveball. Why am I not throwing this pitch more? And now I think he kind of broke down that barrier and that resistance. And we've seen pitch selection change across the league now where we're seeing fewer fastballs and more of these so-called secondary pitches because that's what works. So there's these two
1: stories for baseball hitters. One is the macro story, this basic idea that if you swing a little bit up and get closer to the pitcher, you will meet the plane of the pitch and you will hit the ball upwards and outcomes are better going upwards. And, you know, you can see that through this big picture data, the outcomes that you talked about, you know, fly balls are more productive than ground balls. but. The more remarkable piece of this that I got from your book was the way that that information and this technology combined to work at the most micro level on a swing-to-swing basis or on a pitch-to-pitch basis when practicing. So why is it consequential that players can now, in a storage unit in Tarzana or whatever, get all this information every time they swing?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it is the technology. You can, you don't need much space to get better. And I do think that is an interesting insight, not just in our book. I think Daniel Coyle has written about that too, and Talent Code, and uh, I'm sure there's other literature out there. But yeah, you can get better in a storage unit, which is kind of like a remarkable thing. You don't need this <laughs> this giant field uh, and palatial surroundings to get better. You can get better uh, at Doug Lata's, uh <laughs> facility, which essentially is a storage unit. It does have a kitchenette and a bathroom, and, <laughs> but it's basically two batting cages and you can get better there. Uh, and, you know, part of it is the hit tracks, Rapsodo giving you instant feedback. So it's not just guessing. It's not just an art form. It is, as Ben said, this is a science now. And uh, was this, that swing felt good, but were the results, were they better? And you can see that instantly. Uh, We know launch, you know, we know optimum launch angles. Uh, You can work on, you can see which pitches you struggle with, uh, which ones you're more effective at, uh, I know Jason Ochard at Driveline, who was their head of hitting before he joined the Phillies, he would talk about how poor uh, amateur hitters were at getting the ball in the air to their poolside. And, and that's, I mean, even at the professional level, which is why we see infield shifts, most balls hit to a batter's poolside are ground balls. So if you can improve in that area and turn those ground balls into line drives and fly balls, you can become Mookie Betts, which is what in part what he did en route to an ALMVP award last year. You can become... Uh, Jose Ramirez, the good version of last year, who's maybe warming up a little right now, or Francisco Lindor. These guys became much less ground ball guys to their pool side, uh, and a lot of that work was done in batting cages for uh, for JD Martinez, Turner, even Cody Bellinger, who's a much he was already good. Now he's great. A lot of his improvement came in, you know, small facilities this year, this off season, with the feedback, with the right coaching, and he's he's shown us that you don't. Uh, have to become a huge strikeout guy to get better. You can; get, he's gotten better in every facet of hitting as he's made these, uh, I guess, slightly modest. But I mean, he has made philosophical and mechanical adjustments this year, and he's uh, he's already a six win player. So yeah, you don't need much space to get better. You do need games to see live pitching and that give that sort of feel. But yeah, one of those insights uh, that it's about the quality. It's making practice smarter through. Uh, Improving the feedback in the loop and just quickening the feedback loop and taking the the feel and search out and replacing it with more productive practice. I feel like the phrase intentional practice or
1: practicing intentionally stuck out for me from the book. The idea that you don't need a bulk of practice necessarily. What you need to do is practice in a way that is productive and that this technology gives the feedback uh, that allows you to perceive on a granular level, pitch by pitch, uh, whether you are doing better or worse, which is something that never existed before.
0: Right. Players have always worked hard, but I don't think they could work as efficiently as they do now. The system just wasn't set up that way. There was a lot of practice that involved just going through the motions. You know, batting practice in baseball traditionally is maybe you face a, a pitching machine, maybe you face a, an old coach who's hanging around and he just kind of lobs the ball in at a slow speed and you just take easy swings and you warm yourself up. And pitchers would have bullpen sessions where essentially they would just throw and, you know, they They'd heat themselves up and they'd keep their arms in shape, but they weren't necessarily always working on something or working on it in a really concerted fashion. And today, I think when players practice, they always have a goal in mind. The insight of this intentional or deliberate or purposeful practice is that you can't really get better if you're just repeating something that you have already mastered. You know, Maybe you can maintain the skill that you already have, but in order to acquire a new skill, you really have to be challenging yourself. You have to be going beyond what you can currently do. That's the only way to get better. And I think that's what baseball players are doing. So now they're taking back Adding practice against you know live pitching at full speed with breaking balls. I mean they're seeing the stuff that they actually see in games And there's a greater certainty in practice. If you're a pitcher who's in a bullpen session now with one of these high speed cameras and a device that's monitoring the spin of your pitch, you don't even really have to see these pitches work or not work in a game to know whether you're getting better. Whereas in the past, hitters would have had to tell you whether you were getting better. You know, you'd have to throw a certain number of games, a certain number of innings, and assess whether what you were doing was actually an improvement. Whereas now you can see after every pitch, oh, okay, this pitch actually spun more. It moved more. It moved in a way that I wanted it to that pairs better with the other pitches that I throw. And you can see that in a second. You can see it in an instant after you throw. And so it helps you really ingrain those lessons in a way that I think before when you were changing something and then some number of hours or days or weeks would go by before you could assess whether it was an improvement or not, it was hard, I think, to maintain those changes. So this is something that players are employed. Now, and and we think it's something that also employs, it also applies beyond baseball, which is something that really attracted us to this topic the idea that we're not all trying to be major leaguers and we couldn't all be major leaguers, even if we did use these cutting edge techniques. But we're all trying to be better at something and we could all be better at something. And some of these principles really apply to whatever walk of life. You know, you can use the idea of deliberate practice, of challenging yourself, of getting whatever form of feedback is available in your line of work to make yourself better. And so I think these lessons apply beyond baseball.
1: Well, Ben and Travis, I sure appreciate you taking all this time to be on Bullseye, and I really loved the book. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks again to Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchik. Their book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players is out now. You can also listen to Ben's great podcast, Effectively Wild, While you're working on that new curveball, that's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California where this week our producer Ragu saw horses around the lake. He thinks that police were using them. It says here in the script, Ragu says he would 100% sign up for one of those app-based scooter situations, only it's horses. Just like horses hanging out around your neighborhood. You just, you know, rent it out. That's a free idea, America, from my producer, Raghu. The show is produced by speaking into microphones. Our producer emeritus, one day to return, is Kevin Ferguson. He's taking care of a new baby. So Raghu Manavalan stepped in for him this week and came up with that uh, horse rental situation. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Casey is a Twins fan. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. She's from uh, Philadelphia, so I'm going to say she's a Phillies fan. Raghu, what's your favorite team? Ragu is a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, as is Kevin Ferguson. That's just the reality of doing a public radio program in Los Angeles, is you're gonna get these Dodgers fans working for you, and you can't judge them for it. You have to go into it with an open mind. I, of course, root for the San Francisco Giants. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Dan Wally's from Massachusetts. I'm going to have to say he's a Red Sox fan. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. The Go Team are from England, so they probably don't know from baseball. They probably only play rounders. Uh, but let's say the uh, folks at Memphis Industries probably root for the Memphis Redbirds. Before you go, did you know Bullseye has been around for almost two decades now and all of our past shows, almost all of them anyway, are up on the internet and available to you to listen to for free. You can find them by searching our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find many of them on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, including uh, this week's interviews in easily shareable fashion. Uh, All that on our website, MaximumFun.org. Uh, in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're on Twitter at Bullseye. I'm at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
2: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.